The enemy of my enemy is my friend. How many of you have heard this ancient proverb before? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. It, the origin of this proverb we don't really know. I think there's historical evidence that says it was found in Sanskrit. And so it's really, really old. But the truth of this is really fully on display in today's gospel reading. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. We see this at work in these two factions of people who have approached Jesus and who are seeking to undermine him, to humiliate him, to make him look like a fool. Who are these two groups? Well, on the one hand, we have the group known as the Herodians, Herod's family. They are half native, half Jewish, and half Gentile. So they're a mixed breed, you could say, and why that's important is going to become clear in just a moment. They're collaborationists. They work with the Romans because that's how they secure their political power. The Romans have allowed the Jewish kings, the Herodians, to maintain the throne, but with certain requirements. They must keep the peace. They must make sure that everyone is obeying and following Roman law. So the Herodians are the political power. They're very culturally progressive, you could say. They want to make sure that the region of Israel, of Palestine, is culturally updated. It's with the times. And of course, the times are dominated by the Romans. So they make sure that Palestine has gymnasiums, bathhouses, amphitheaters, places of Roman culture are on firm and full display for all the people to enjoy. That's the Herodians. Then you have the Pharisees. They are the Jewish patriots. They are the ones who uphold the religious traditions of the Jewish people. The Torah, the law of Moses. They are the ones who maintain the spiritual power along with another group called the Sadducees. They are the Puritans, you could say. And so the Pharisees are horrified by the Herodians who have mixed marriages, who have allowed Gentiles to be mixed into the pure Jewish bloodline. They are horrified at the Roman customs and cultural progressivism of the Herodians. How dare you let Roman culture impinge on the freedom and the practices of our Jewish nation? But on the other hand, as much as the Pharisees hate the Herodians, the Herodians are completely contemptuous of the Pharisees. These are religious nutjobs. They're Puritans. They stand in the way of progress and everything that is good about Roman culture. You could say that if we were to try to translate it into Canadian context, the Herodians are kind of like the Federalists and the Pharisees are kind of like the Quebec Separatists. Now, the analogy doesn't work too great, but it helps us to understand that these groups absolutely despise each other. They are completely antithetically opposed in everything about them. There is no common ground. There is nothing that they can agree on. So how did these two groups who would kill each other, basically in any other context, come together to agree on anything? How did this unholy alliance come about? Well, isn't it just like Jesus to come in and to disturb and upend the political power, the religious power, to completely turn over the tables on all these people who had, or what they thought they had, was everything together? 
You see, the truth is that the gospel always exposes our enemies. Paul makes reference to this in our reading, for the first reading from Philippians. The gospel exposes our enemies. Jesus will always have a way of showing the people who are opposed to him. And he does it simply by being who he is. Because if you think about it, humans from the beginning of our history have always tried to frustrate, to ignore, and to silence the word of God. It's kind of in our fallen human nature to, to do these things, to say, we don't need God. Well, we're fine on our own. We'll order our lives the way we want to. Thank you very much. We don't need any external interference. But then Jesus comes along and he challenges things just by being who he is. Now, Jesus is a scandal to the Pharisees. He's a scandal to the Pharisees because he breaks the Sabbath. Remember, the Pharisees had all these external additional laws that they built to help to follow the law of Moses. So they had created all these traditions and external rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath holy. The intent of the Pharisees was very good. But the problem was they accrued and made all these man-made laws and traditions that Jesus, as we know, would challenge time and again. And to add insult to injury, Jesus was known for hanging around tax collectors, that is, Jewish people who turned against their own Jewish brothers and sisters to collaborate with the Roman Empire. In the show The Chosen, which I know you've heard me talk about, but the portrayal of Matthew in The Chosen is quite brilliant in how they do this in Matthew's relationship to his family, to his Jewish compatriots, and how Jesus calls him out of that life and how he really doesn't get along initially very well with those who despised him, who saw him as a collaborationist. So the Pharisees hate Jesus because he hangs around with sinners, prostitutes, the worst of the worst, those who are unclean. And the Pharisees don't like Jesus because Jesus is a disturber of the peace. He challenges the powers that be. Because remember, Jesus is a known associate and family relative of John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist directly confronted the Herodians when he told the king, you can't kill your brother to marry your sister-in-law. Because that's what was happening. Herod had killed his brother so that he could marry the sister-in-law. And to make matters worse, that story with the daughter that's dancing, his niece slash daughter, when he says, I'll give you half my kingdom, that's actually a sexual overture saying, you're the younger version of your mom who I killed for. I like you better. So the Herodians see Jesus as standing in the line of John the Baptist as someone who's going to create a problem for them. And the Herodians, the one thing they cannot have is a political problem because the Romans will divest them and strip them of all their power if there's any discord. They need to keep the peace, to keep the Romans off their backs. So this unholy alliance is built of that proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Common interest prevails to be rid of Jesus. And as I said, attempts to muzzle God are as old as human history itself. But it's quite brilliant what they do. This very, like, they're, they're so clever. 
And it explains why they're able to maintain and hold power, just because they're so shrewd. They come and they flatter Jesus. Oh, you're a wonderful teacher, right? They're trying to disarm Jesus. They don't really mean that they think Jesus is a wonderful teacher. They're trying to ingratiate themselves into his presence, right? They're sycophants. That's how our world works too, right? You want to get into the to the presence of the powerful, the movers and shakers, you, you kind of butter them up a little bit. You make them feel good about themselves. Now, Jesus plays along, but he knows what's going on. So they flatter him, and then they pounce. The trap has been sprung. We're going to get this guy. We're going to be rid of him. Because the trap is, is that Jesus aligns himself one way or the other with either the Pharisees or the Herodians by the way he answers their question. So either way, it's a victory for the other side, And those two sides, the Pharisees and the Herodians, regardless of how Jesus answers, can continue to hate each other. And Jesus just gets caught up in the crossfire. But of course, Jesus sees right through their plan, immediately through that. He sees through it and he asks for a coin. A coin is a symbol of power. But in Jesus' time, it's more than just a symbol of power. It's a symbol of foreign domination because it's not created in Palestine. It's created in Rome. It's a symbol of foreign domination. It is hated, therefore, because every time we have to use these coins, we are reminded that we are a subjected, excuse me, and subjugated people that a foreign power has occupied and taken our land. But more than that, to add insult to injury, What does it say on the coin? It has a profile image of Tiberius Caesar, the reigning emperor at that time, and it says on it, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. Because Tiberius falling in the line of Caesars, if you know history, you'll know that Caesar Augustus was declared to be the son of God. He was declared to be divine. So this is blasphemy on this coin. The Pharisees are upset, not just because of the foreign domination it represents, but because of the blasphemy it represents, that Caesar is claiming to be God. Jesus' answer is not about whether you should pay your taxes or not. Whether or not you should pay your taxes is a question that you can ask the Canada Revenue Agency, and you know what the answer will be on that. Neither is Jesus interested in talking about the difference between church and state. Because ultimately, that's the debate that the Pharisees and the Herodians are having amongst themselves, is between church and state. But Jesus has something else entirely in mind. And he frames the question using this coin that they had brought to entrap Jesus. And Jesus says, Caesar, of course, does not want to lose what is his. It's got his picture on it. It's got his name on it. That's a claim of ownership. He wants it back. His empire depends on these coins, the paying of taxes, to fund the military, to fund the building of roads, to fund the building of the gymnasiums and bathhouses and amphitheaters. Of course he wants it. You and I could make our own money. It's not really legal tender. And if we got caught making our own money, the authorities will have something to say about that because the production of money has to be authorized by the government of Canada because that's how our economy works. The money goes that way and that's how we live the lives we live. 
But the fundamental question Jesus is asking is this. Whose image is stamped on you? Whose image is stamped on you? We know the answer to that question. Right back in the beginning. You are created in the image and likeness of God. To be created in the image of likeness of God in the same way Caesar wants his money back is to say God does not want to lose what is his by right. God's will is to lose nothing of those of what he has made, of those that he has stamped with his image. Think of that parable of the lost coin. The woman upturns everything to find that one coin that she has lost. Christ's coinage is you and me because our, we are stamped with his image and therefore we owe our lives to God. Our lives belong to him. Not in the hour on Sundays that we dedicate for religious matters, but everything, every moment of every day belongs to God. Because our vocation is to become human in the way that Jesus Christ himself is human. Jesus is the fullness of the image and likeness of God. We are created to be like him. And therefore, our lives are learning to become to grow into the fullness of that image of God, to become human the way that Jesus is is human, and therefore to become like God. But none of this is possible on our own because we did not make ourselves, we did not stamp ourselves with our own image. You see, the problem in humankind is we like to be self-made people stamped with our own seal of approval. But we are stamped with the image and likeness of God, and God demands that what is his be returned to him. So we must render to God the things that are God's. I must give of myself, my soul and body, everything that makes me who I am, I have to give it all to God. All my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not just a part. Not just dealing with God and saying, okay, listen, God, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you... 10%, 25% of my time, and the rest of the time is for me, we'll we'll trade that off. No. We know what happens if you commit tax fraud. The CRA does not like that. God does not want us to commit tax fraud. Not because God needs us as collector pieces in some collection, but because God loves us. So what we owe God is 100%, but what we get back when we offer ourselves to him is we get back more than we could ask or imagine because we get our life back. Our life charged and infused with the glory of God at work in us. Bringing us closer and closer and forming us more and more into the image and likeness of God. And so this is good news. Because God is at work in us. God wants to feed us, to form us, to shape us. And he does this through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He does this through the word of God, broken open for us. And he does it in the sacrament of his altar. You see, our whole life needs to be pointed to God. Our whole life needs to be pointed to Christ. Because after our life on earth is done... Life has just begun. And that's why this is not, and this story is not about the battle between church and state. It is a battle between the heavenly kingdom of God and the earthly kingdom of the self. 
So we reorient ourselves to the cross. And we remind ourselves that this is where we are pointed to the image and likeness of God, that self-sacrificial love given to us on the cross. And in so pointing ourselves to the cross, Jesus says, I give you back your life, full of grace, full of peace, full of the light and love that only I can give you. That is good news. So let us, my friends, give all of ourselves our pains, our struggles, our joys, our triumphs, and let us lay them on the altar of Christ for his glory and for our glory. Thanks be to God. Amen.